There are going to be times when I have a message that burdens my heart and I will take a break from Luke and after getting two prayers for me to preach well from Luke and accurate, I'm not going to preach from Luke. Uh, I'm going to be in Ephesians. So uh, in light of that, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5 today. Uh, Take your Bibles and turn over there and before we get started, we're going to pray that God helps us to learn from him. Let's pray. Father, we come needy people, desperate people, people without hope apart from you, but with you and in Christ, saved, being sanctified people. Help us, Lord, now to learn from you. Help us, Lord, to know you more. Oh, God, show us your glory, as Moses prayed. Open the eyes of our heart that we may see you and behold great glory in you. And then may we walk away from this place changed forever. Lord, thank you for the promise that we have in your word your word will not return void, and that your word is a sharp two-edged sword piercing into us. Change us, God. We pray that in your son's name. Amen. All right. The impossible commission or the impossible command. Have you all seen the stories this week of the Fukushima 50, the Fukushima 50, those in, yeah, that's a big word, hard word. Those are the men that are sacrificing their lives in Japan. You know, the 50 men, it's actually 300 men, came to find out, come to find out. And what they do is, is they take shifts of 50 and they go into the plant. They're trying to rescue this nuclear plant. And their whole reason for going in is to keep it from melting down and basically killing maybe millions in Japan. These men are on a task that they, some estimate, could take a hundred years. They will fight this problem for a hundred years to try to take care of this issue. In other words, it continues to melt down and there's problems that you continually have to battle all the way and they keep going in. And these men, these 300 men, go in and literally are probably going to die within a month or two. Many of them could die within a month or two. And they keep going in. They are on an impossible job, an impossible commission. They have been called to go into a situation that seems absolutely impossible. And yet they're doing it. Why? Because they were and they believe and they love their country and they're going to go in there and do everything they can to protect these people. Literally, they are called to do the impossible. Today, we're going to look at a passage that is a call for impossibility. An impossibility that is... The first time I read it, the first hundred times I read this passage, I said, it's, 
I would say it's harder than what these guys are doing. (laughs) The situation is even worse. Take your Bibles, turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. I want to read our passage. And we're going to go through these two verses and discuss what an impossible task we have. How in the world can we do this? How in the world can we keep these commands, this commission from God's word? Today I want to look at these commands. Notice chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you. And gave himself up for us, an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. This, ladies and gentlemen, is a command. Two commands are found in this passage. Two impossible commissions. Should we just go home hearing, imitate God? There you go. Imitate God and walk in love like Christ loved. That's what you have to do. Those are the commands. You ready? Everybody want to do it, right? Imitate God. That seems impossible, doesn't it? Love like Christ loved us. Seems impossible. Let's look at this passage and just kind of go through it. It's a mission impossible made possible by Christ. And we see it in the verse itself. It starts with the word therefore, and therefore is therefore a reason, as we all know, correct? Our passage falls in the middle of a section that Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. The letter is written to a strong doctrinal church. It's a church that was led by various pastors over the days. Even in that time, Paul had spent many years with them. And John had the apostle John will spend time with them. And Timothy will spend time with him. This is a, for lack of a better term, a great church. An amazing church. A doctrinally strong church. And he gives them these words. And these words, you might think at first glance, oh, impossibility. But the church is given it by Paul. Paul says, do it. This church was established by Paul himself on one of his missionary journeys. And One of the key themes, as one of the commentators states, is love. Love is found throughout this. I find it interesting that if you go over to Revelation, take your Bibles, turn over to Revelation for a second, that many years later, there's a rebuke by Jesus himself on the very topic of what he is dealing with here. This same church, and Jesus says something to them. Notice in Revelation chapter 2, it's the first church of the seven churches that John's writing to as he sees from Jesus what he should reveal. And he says this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, so important folks, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, that is the one who controls the messengers, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false. So in effect, he says, you guys are good at pointing out false teachers. (laughs) 
you guys, you're doctrinally strong. This is a sharp church. But then notice, and you have persevered, verse 3, and have endured for my namesake and have not grown weary. What accommodation, right? Everybody, wouldn't you like somebody, Jesus especially, to say this about you? You persevered. You hung in there. But then look at verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You've abandoned your first love. Love's the problem. They aren't loving Christ. They've abandoned Christ, their first love. So a church that had gotten a letter and had been told that love is so important, and we'll see it, walk in love, doctrinally strong, could point out false teachers, could do all those great things, yet what were they missing? Love. Love for Christ. They lost their first love. What's wrong? In Paul's letter in Ephesus here, we see this command to love, walk in love as Christ loves. And as we go through, you're going to see there's two main parts to the book. The book breaks down, and by the way, um, starting that new thing, young people, if you fill out your bulletin, you can come up and see me afterwards. I want you all to be active and write your notes. Look at them. Look, everybody, I want you to notice. Uh, some of you that are visitors, I want you to notice our young people are actually taking notes. They're doing it, hopefully, for the right reason, right? <laughs> All right. The calling of the Christian, the calling of the Christian is found in chapters 1 through 3. Chapters 1 through 3. He talks about doctrine in Ephesus, in Ephesians. The calling of the Christian, it's chapters 1 through 3. And then there's the conduct of the Christian that's found in chapters 4 through 6. In chapters 4 through 6. So there's the calling. This is who we are in Christ. This is what God has done for us in Christ. This is how God should be praised for all that he has done. And then in chapter 4, notice in chapter 4 verse 1, there's a transition. It says this. Therefore... I, am the, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. In other words, live like you are. Be who you are. If you are a Christian and you are called based on all that you've seen in the first three chapters, that God chose you before the foundation of the world, that God did all these amazing things, therefore... Walk, live in a worthy manner, in a way that equals what your calling is. And then he begins to do these implored or commands. Chapter 4, verse 1 is 1. Walk in unity is the concept that's found there. And then there's walk in holiness in chapter 4, verses 17 to 32. These are all live this way based on who you are. I guess the best way to put this, to get this concept what do pigs do? They wallow in mud, right? What pigs do? They do pig things, right? What do cows do? Same thing. They do what cows do. Do the cows talk? No. Do cows live holy lives? No. Cows are cows. They eat grass. They chew their cud, right? Christians, however, 
are different. They are Christians. They've been set apart by God to be holy. They are different. God chose us before the foundation of the world to be these holy and blameless beings. He puts the Holy Spirit in us and seals us, right? He does all these things. This is who we are. If you are a born-again believer, this is you are a Christian. And how should we walk? Like a Christian. And the commands are found throughout chapters 4 through 6. In chapter 4, walk in unity. In chapter 4, walk in holiness. Or, and then chapter 5, our verse, our chapter, walk in love. That's the emphasis. Then he goes on and talks about walk in light. We won't go all through all these, but walk in wisdom. These are the way Christians are supposed to walk. This is what we're supposed to do. This is who we are, so this is what we're supposed to do. Does God give us commands that we're not able to do? It's a good question to ask. Does God give us commands that we're not able to do? No. Not if we're a Christian. He gives us these and then empowers us to give us the abilities to do it. He wants us to do it. He doesn't just say, that would be horrible. Can you imagine if I told my son, I'll tell you what, it will please me, Andrew, if you jump on top of the roof and get the the ball off the roof, you can't use a ladder, jump up there and get it. Jump. That's a command. Jump on the roof. That would be very nice, would it? My little 10-year-old can't jump on the roof. It's an impossible thing. It will really please me, though. I'll get great joy if you jump on the roof and get that ball down. He can't do it. That'd be crazy, right? I can just see him. Well, I'd climb on the fence. Maybe I could do it that way, and, right? Yeah, put the trampoline, but we don't have one, so he'd have to borrow one. <laughs> He's doing everything he can. He wants to do it, but he can't jump. It's impossible. It's not who he is. I would not give my son a command that he couldn't do. So why does he give us these commands? Are they impossible commands that he, we just can't do? No. No, he gives us commands and empowers us to be able to do it. Not for our glory. We don't all stand up and say, I did it, I did it, I imitated God today. Come on. That's not what it's about. If God works in us, we do it and we glorify the king. And he works within us. He empowers us to make us able to do it. So look, let's look at these verses. First, we will break down the passage into three sections. The foundation for obeying the impossible command. The first impossible command to obey by grace. And then the second impossible command to obey by grace. They're not hard. Let's just walk through this. First, let's start with the foundation for obeying the impossible command. That's found at the beginning of chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, that little phrase, as beloved children, that's one of those that we might throw off to the side and say, oh, well, it's not a very important phrase. But that phrase is huge. That's an important phrase. Imitate God. Be imitators of God as beloved children. And therefore, is at the beginning of it, pointing to who we are in Christ, therefore do this. Because God has set us free, made us alive, Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, do it. 
Based on everything I've told you so far, be imitators of God. And then he says this little phrase, as beloved children. Folks, Paul has something in mind under the inspiration of God. He has chapter 1, verse 5 in mind. Look over there. Chapter 1, verse 5. I've got it up here on the, on the PowerPoint too. This is in the heart, the mind of the believer. This is who we are. This is a crucial point. Look at Ephesians chapter five, 1, verse 5. It says, He predestined us to adoption as sons. Same concept. As sons. Through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. What is this about? The reason I say that Paul has this in mind in chapter 5, verse 1, is because there is this child-son relationship, a relationship between God as our Father and us as his children. And he's already brought it up in Ephesians chapter 1 that we have been adopted as sons. We are his loved children. Why is this important? How do you imitate your father if he's not your father if he's your father you know him you want to follow your dad how many of you know this about your children do you know your 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 kids look at you and they say i want to be like you some parents are like ooh some of us some of us including myself at times go ooh i hope he doesn't want to be like me right But we have been adopted. We have been taken as God's own child. We know him that way. He predetermined that we would be his child. This is a foundational truth in what we understand. Imitate God because he is our father. Imitate your father. That's what we're about. God... God's predetermined plan was to adopt us despite who we were. Do you understand, folks? He predetermined each of us who are believers to be adopted as his children. He predestined us to be, to be adopted to accomplish this, and he did it through Jesus Christ. He predestined us according to the kind intention of his will. This was all about God looking at us in our situation and saying, I love you, you're mine, I'm going to choose you. You're my child. This is what God said. This is a great and glorious truth. So we were loved by God. He chose us. We are his children. Why? Why did he choose me? Why did he choose you? It's a trick question. Was there something special in me? No. It was out of his unmerited, gracious goodness. He was just a good God. He did this just out of grace. It reminds me so much, folks. Look, Brenda and I, as you all know, we're going through the last stages of adoption. And through this process, we're learning more and more about our Heavenly Father's love in His adopting us. 
We are seeing God's grace over and over displayed in the process. Adopting a child in a sin-filled world comes with what? Sacrifice. It costs something. It's very costly. Tons of sacrifice. But the sacrifice we're going through compares compared to what our Father did to adopt us is absolutely nothing. Our sacrifice is nothing. Wait, when you see Julie, she's easy. She's, it's easy. She's beautiful. It's great. No problem. For God, it cost him a lot. If you told me, if you told me I had to hang my son Andrew up on a cross and pour out all the wrath of God on my son in order for me to get Julie, I'd have a hard time saying I'd do that. That's what God did for us. That's what that verse says. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Folks, do you understand? Do you understand what it costs God the Father for you to be his child? Stop for a second. Think about this. All the wrath of God was poured out on the Son. He was brutally killed so that you could be his adopted child. Is this love? Is there any greater love than this? There's nothing that compares to that. He's my father, he's my daddy. He loves me total sacrifice, utter sacrifice. This is what the Lord did for us. He predetermined me in my fallen state and you in your fallen state to be his adopted child. He rescued us from an evil world and made us free. What makes the adoption so staggering is what it cost him. Ladies and gentlemen, do you see the goodness of our God? Do you know how much he loves you? Now, some people say, well, Mike, we can't preach about love because all the other churches talk about love. And whatever you do, don't talk about God's love. You know, because we got we got to bail on that because everybody else, you know, they just too much love of God and not enough wrath of God. And so we're not going to talk about the love of God. Ladies and gentlemen, if you understand the wrath of God, you truly know the love of God. For if you understand the wrath of God, you understand that you deserve God's wrath. And in order for him to appease his own wrath, he sent his son to take that, and that's his love. That is great love. That is amazing love. And that is the love that moves a child to obey their father. And want to be like him. Now folks get it. Now get how it all fits together. He predestined you to be adopted as his son. His child. You through the death of his son. Jesus his own son. Sacrificed for you. Now therefore do what? Be imitators. 
of your Father. Be imitators of your Father. Do you know it? Do you understand it? Do you get His love? The impossible command begins to get a little bit more possible when we understand how much my Father loves me. Because I want to be like Him. Don't you? Don't you want to be like your Heavenly Father? Don't you want to lay down your life like He does? Don't you want to love people like He loves? Like He loved you? This word imitate. Be imitators. That's the command. As beloved children, be imitators. Imitate God, therefore. Summer states this. It is a trait of the conduct of children that they have a way of imitating the father they, that they love and admire. Boy, isn't there a little warning there for all of us fathers? That's a warning too, by the way. You believe it or not, even your lost children want to imitate you. They're watching you. They want to be like you. Be careful. But that's what we are. We're his children, so we want to be like him. Another commentator stated this about the passage. They are children of God, experiencing God's love continuously. Children should be like their father. And love should meet love. If you're being loved by God and you know that he loves you like this all the time and he predestined us, shouldn't we want to love? Shouldn't we want to imitate him? This word imitator, it's where we get our, our concept mimic, follow behind, mimic. Do be just like him. Follow his image. It's in that section. Be like your father who adopted you through the person and work of Christ. He sacrificed so much to make us his children. Folks, it cost God tons. In the same way, we should know that we should be willing to give up everything. Right? Let's, let's listen for a second. The evangelistic message to call to follow Jesus is what? There's good news that Jesus Christ came and died and rose from the dead, right? There's more to that gospel message. You ready? Here's what the gospel message says. Give up everything you have and follow me. That's what Jesus said. Be willing to lay down your life for me and follow me. No work should come before me. No job should come before me. No family should come before me. Nothing should come before me. Is that good news? Absolutely. Because he's worthy of all of that that it cost. Because he sacrificed for me. He gave everything for me, for me to give everything to him is what? Nothing. It's still small. If I gave my life right now, it would pale in comparison to what he gave when he gave up his son. That's that song that we sang, Daniel. It's a song. We owe him everything, don't we? To give him everything is nothing. <laughs> What do I lose if I give everything up to follow him? Nothing. I get him. 
I get my sins paid for. Oh, I want to be like him, don't you? Give it up. You don't need it. Nothing should come before him. He cost him everything to make you his child. And tied to this first commandment is the second. We want to walk in love. Folks, I want to get this. I want you to understand this. There's a command to obey, to walk in love. Ephesians 5.2 says it. And walk in love. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Oh, there's so much imagery in this. So many pictures in this. To help us to understand better how much God loves us. Walk. That means live in love. Live in sacrificial sacrificial commitment to God as seen in Christ. Our lives must reflect, reflect Christ's love. This is the requirement. And to make sure the believers understand fully what this love looks like, Paul then steps back and reminds them again. It's, he does it. Gives two commands. As beloved children, knowing that God is your Father, that God lovingly chose you, and as Christ also loved you. We've looked at two members of the Trinity and seen their love. Now we got to be like that. Let's look at the second. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. What a great phrase. We can't even comprehend how great this is. We, we begin to get it when we see our sin in light of God's holiness and realize what God thinks of sin. What does God think of sin? He hates it. I had the great opportunity of listening to Jerry Bridges this week, and we, he was teaching on uh, respectable sins. And he talked about three of them. One of them was impatience. And he made the point that what we do with some of our sins, like impatience, we do this. We say, oh, well, that's not that bad of a sin. We don't even call it a sin. We fall into the world and we say it's just a mistake. We do it to our children, too. We get frustrated at our children. We get impatient with our children, and we say we raise our voice a little bit and get angry. We get impatient. We know it's in our heart, and we then say to our children, what? I made a mistake. What is that? That's called making sin respectable in our eyes. It's a sin. It's even worse. It's making the sin sinner or more sinful. It's not a mistake. It's an affront to a holy God. He hates impatience. He hates it. He despises it. When we're sitting in the car and somebody pulls out in front of us and we get angry, he hates that. But what do we do? What do we do? We say, oh, well, it's understandable those guys were a jerk, so, you know, that's why. And it's who I am. It's who I am. That's how I was raised. My parents did it, so I do it. That's the way I am. It's who I am. No, you're not. I thought Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 are you. You are a Christian set apart 
made alive, different. Imitate your God who is long-suffering. Oh, folks, do you see this? This is convicting stuff, isn't it? Trust me, I got my, my face kicked by Jerry on Thursday or Wednesday night. Repented all the way home and in my bed and half the next day. Of all the things that I had taken and said, okay, it's just, you know, it's just this. No. God hates, hates it. He hates sin. And he hates it so much that he demands a sacrifice. And who is that sacrifice? Our Savior. It had to be paid for. And that's what Christ did. He gave himself up for us. Is my sin forgiven? Absolutely. It was forgiven the day I believed I was declared right with God. I was declared right with him. However, I've forgotten that it was that sin that caused his death. The idea is is he handed himself over as a sacrifice for us. This is who Jesus is. Take me as the peace offering. Take me as the atonement for sin. Take me, Father. Pour out your wrath on me. So I can set these people free. Oh, what grace. What love. You get it. This is who God is. This is what he's done for you. (laughs) He gave himself. Christ himself gave himself. Look over at Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is in the garden. And he's facing the cross. Do you think that Jesus understood what was coming? I think he did. You know why? Because he read scripture. (laughs) He knew very well. Now he was God and man in some ways. That's a mystery. He was both. But he learned too. And I guarantee you there were some scriptures that probably stuck in his mind. I can think of a couple. Psalm 22. Read that one day. (laughs) Isaiah 53. Read that. I bet you those stuck in his mind. And he says this in verse 39. Remember, he told him to pray, and he goes a little beyond them. And he fell on his face, and he prayed, and he said, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Now, wait a second. What is a cup? No big deal. A cup? Cup? It's talking about something. It's talking about a cup of sacrifice, pouring out himself as a sacrifice, being poured out as the sacrifice for God, taking the wrath that we deserve. If this cup of being sacrificed for these wicked people that hate you and me, I will do it, if you will. Then in verse 42 it says, My father... He goes back, remember, they're sleeping. Boy, I find it interesting. (laughs) Keep watching and praying. What is that? That's a command. 
How well did they do? They didn't. They didn't obey the command. Okay, so what's he doing? As he walks back and he's talking to the father, what's he doing ultimately? Okay, I've got a sacrifice for those sleeping disobedient ones over there. I just gave them a th- I'm going to have to take the judgment for that sin too. That one over there. And he says, my father, if this cannot pass from me, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. It's almost like God shows them how needy the disciples are. By giving, He gives that command and he says, see, look, they can't do it. They can't do it. They can't do it. They need you. They have to have a sacrifice for their sin. It's amazing. And then if you go over to John 18, y'all know the story when Jesus is arrested and Peter draws his sword, goes to cut and instruct the high priest's slave and cut off the right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus, right? Y'all remember that? Look at what Jesus says. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword in the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Shall I not take this wrath? Would you rather take it by yourself, Peter? Do you want to take the judgment? I'll take it. Do you not want me to take the sacrifice? Do you not want me to become the sacrifice for you? What is he doing? He's giving himself up for us. He is surrendering himself to the Father as a judgment, as a sacrifice for our sin. Oh, folks, this is glorious truth. Jesus willfully gave himself up for your sin when he says, do you not want me to drink this cup? Do we understand what this love is? Do you really get it? Do we get it? Do we know how much he loves us? Do we really? I know I'm asking a question over and over, but it's so important. It's crucial. If you really get the love of God, to walk in love is a privilege. It's not a duty. Did you hear me? If you really get the love of God, it's a privilege, not a duty. I want to be like my father who adopted me. (laughs) I want to love like he loved me. Don't you? Even if it means laying down your life for other people. Yeah. I want to do it. Notice in... Back in Ephesians 5, it says, The sacrifice to God was a fragrant aroma. This is comparing the smell of a sacrifice to God in the Old Testament that pleased him because it comes from a broken and contrite heart. God was pleased by the sacrifice ultimately of Jesus Christ. Notice Isaiah 53.10 said this. This is, You know, this is way before Jesus shows up on the scene, seven to six six to seven hundred years before, right? 
Before he shows up on the scene, do you think Jesus knew these words? Absolutely. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. And that's what Jesus did. The father was pleased to kill the son, to crush him, to put out all of his wrath on the son. That's an intense thought, isn't it? We can't even think that way. That shows God's thoughts are way farther than ours, aren't they? Why? Because he saw people in desperate need and he predetermined that he would adopt us as his child. And the only way that would happen is through the crushing of his son. Oh, God was satisfied by the sacrifice of his son. It was a fragrant aroma to God. His wrath was appeased. By the sacrifice. God's wrath was taken by the Son, and we were made right with and through this great act of love. This is the sacrificial commitment we are required to live out. You know, sometimes dealing with, I, I, I had opportunity to work with high school students for a little while while I was in seminary. Sometimes they come with the questions, what does God think of drinking? What does God think of, um, you know, just the various things, speeding? You know, what does God think of getting tickets? And I think to myself, you know, at the time I'm thinking, why, why? We're struggling with these, these kind of commands. What do you do with the command, be imitators of God? Don't be drunk with wine. Come on. How about be imitators of God? They, they never come up and ask you that, do they? Hey, hey, am I really supposed to imitate God? Am I really supposed to live in love as Christ loved me? Isn't that a much harder command? How in the world can we expect... If we are thinking so surfacy about little things like whether I should speed or not or obey the rules of the government, if we're struggling with these, how do we get to the deep things of sacrificing our lives for other people that hurt us, not returning revile for revile when somebody hurts us? We need to know what God did for us. He crushed his son for us. To do anything but lay your life down for people would be absolutely useless. Think about it. It's, it. Your life is not your own anymore, right? You've been bought with a price. No person, nothing is more important than Christ, right? Walk in love. Lay down your life for other people. Kill your selfish desires. He develops all this, Paul does, in the verses to come. We are here today to be moved to help other people. This help may come in the form of sin we need to slay in our lives, whether it's impatience, 
irritability, anger, frustration, greed, idolatry. Those things need to be slayed, don't they? If we love Christ and we know he loves us, we got to kill that stuff, mortify it. It's got to go. Or maybe it comes in the form of just complete, utter sacrifice for other people. Can you imagine a church that never thought of themselves but only thought of other people? Can you imagine a church like that? What would it be like? A church that only thought of serving and sacrificing for other people. That's my dream. That's my dream. That's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians here. Walk in love. I guess best summarized, and we all know the verses very well, be a good check for the heart. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 13. Walk in love, what's it look like fleshed out? This is what it looks like. Is this what your life's about? Is this what it looks like? Are you living in love? Do you look like this? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. Wow, doesn't seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love does not take account, take into account a wrong suffered. Whoa, mark that one down. Somebody hurts you? You don't hold it against them. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love doesn't. But it rejoices, love rejoices in truth. It loves the Bible, it loves the Word of God, it loves Christ, it loves, it's all about truth. (laughs) That is what love, sacrificial love is. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. Ladies and gentlemen, this is walking in love. We do this, we look like this, we are being who we are in Christ. We're different. This is what we're supposed to look like. Be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved you and gave himself up for others. Let's pray. Wow, Father. Your word is so convicting, yet so satisfying. Knowing that you chose us, predetermined for us to be your children, despite our wickedness, you chose wicked, rebellious sinners. To be transformed and be made heirs 
and your children. Oh, glorious truth. We want to be like you, Daddy. We want to be like you, our Savior. Help us, God. Through your Spirit that works within us, we resolve to obey these commands. Demonstrate your glory in us so that the world around us will see your glory and will give glory to you at the day you come to them. We praise your name and we commit our day to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.